don't you hate commercials? And it starts off with a book commercial. I only had four copies left. I sold a bunch of them. Um, I went to Fred Hardeman last week. And uh, I'm sorry for that, but I will be glad to sell those four. And if you would like one, uh, just look at a piece of paper, write your name on it, and I will mail it to you myself. So I appreciate that. It's called Brave. God hates coward. God hates a coward. And that's what this book is about. It's about helping us to be brave in an ungodly world. So if you need some help in that area, I know you will enjoy the book. Today we're talking about worship. And I want to thank you for having me. Thank you, Rebecca. I appreciate it so much. Um, As we get started, as we're thinking about worship, I have three main points. You know, I'm married to a preacher. I've been a preacher's wife for 43 years, 44 years next month. Every month counts, right? (laughs) Every year counts. Almost 44 years. Um, Having been married to a preacher, you know how I do a lesson, three points in a poem, right? (laughs) No. Um, But I do have three points today. First, we're going to talk about getting ready for worship. Then we're going to talk about what we recognize as we worship and what we remember as we worship. In Ezra 7.10, Ezra said that he wanted to seek the Lord to do the law and to teach it. And we, most of us know that verse. But we might not know the verse before it where it says in verse 9 that the good hand of the Lord was upon Ezra because He sought, he did, and he taught. The good hand of the Lord was upon him for doing these things, for preparing his heart to seek the Lord. I want the good hand of the Lord to be upon me. Do you? Then would it not do us well to do what Ezra did, to prepare our hearts to seek the Lord? So that's what we're doing today. That's what we do before we go to worship every week. We prepare our hearts. And by doing that, we will have the good hand of the Lord upon us. You know, we know what it means to prepare, to get ready, right? We know what it means. If you're about to get married, we spend a long time getting ready for that wedding, don't we? Usually. If you're going to have a baby... Oh, we spend all those months preparing, don't we? We do. Well, when we come before Almighty God in worship, should that not mean even more to us than any of the things that we do in our mundane lives? We should want to be ready to prepare ourselves to worship God. One of the ways we do that is pray. When we pray, we make a covenant with God that we will please Him in worship, not ourselves. Another thing we do to prepare is we prepare our ourselves, our body, our clothes. As I said, I'm married to a preacher, so you know he's got that favorite shirt he preaches in, right? 
And you know what I'm doing if the button comes off on Sunday morning. Got to play my Dorcas role. Got to get over there and make sure that shirt's ready. Sew that button on. If you have children, you're getting them ready, aren't you? Are you feeding your family before worship? Feeding them properly so they can concentrate, so they can have energy and do what they need to do. So what about sleep? Are you getting the proper sleep? You can't stay up till 4 a.m. and then expect to be ready to go at 8. You can't do that. You know, God has made our bodies so that while we're asleep, we produce certain chemicals. Only when we're sleeping. Did you know that? So if you don't sleep, you are giving yourself a chemical imbalance in your brain. You need sleep. Your family needs sleep. Get the proper sleep. That's part of preparing before you worship. Sleep, food, clothing. It reminds me of the Proverbs 31 woman, does it not? She took care of her household. And that's what we need to do to to be ready. Another thing we need to do before we worship, Jesus tells us this specifically, is we need to make right any relationship that is wrong. Did you know that? I have seen sisters in Christ sit in a building on opposite sides and not speak to each other for years because they had ought against each other. And they thought their worship was going to be acceptable to God. What a surprise on the day of judgment they're going to have. You must make your relationships right with God. Jesus said, you have ought against your brother. You leave your gift at the altar, and you go to your brother, don't you? That's right. Matthew 18. What about married people? Oh. I don't know about Rebecca, but there has been a time or two I've walked into the building when I wasn't completely happy with the man I was married to. I would just tell you honestly. We're just as as human as anybody else. But is it right? You've got to make things right between you. You just have to. In... um, 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter talks about it. He says, if you don't make things right, your prayers will be hindered. You cannot pretend... I'll wait for you. That's all right. Don't you hate technology? (laughs) See? I just hate it. We've got to make things right in our own home so our prayers won't be hindered. It's not an easy thing sometimes. It's not easy to make things right when you've had a falling out with a sister or brother in Christ. Jesus didn't say it's going to be easy. Got to make it right. If you can't make things right between each other, how are you going to be right with God? He said, you can't hate your brother and love God whom you don't see. You see your brother, you need to make things right with your brother. 
first. So that's something we've got to do before we worship. Another thing that we've got to concentrate on is our attitude before we come into worship. We must have an attitude of humility and an attitude of reverence. You know, when God accepts my worship, it's an act of kindness on his part. Did you know that? Does he need my worship? No. He does not need me to complete himself. He is complete and infinite without me, without you. So why does God require that we worship him? For us, for our benefit. Is that not right? So I come with an attitude of humility and reverence for the God that loves me in spite of my sin. What does God delight in then? According to David in Psalm 51, the sacrifice that God delights in is of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. What does that mean? Does that mean I think I'm all that? No, it's the exact opposite. It means that I know I need him. I must come with that attitude of humility. Do you know that if I did everything perfectly, that if I never deviated from God's will, that that is what I owe him? But I have not done that. I have not given him what he deserves. I will always be an unprofitable servant in need of a Savior. And my God provided that for me. That should cause us to have an attitude of humility and reverence. I went to my son, Clint. He's he's 40 years old. I must have been about five when he was born. Uh, Anyway, I said, uh, I told him I was coming here, what the subject was and everything, and I said, uh, what do you think, son? What do you think about what helps you focus in worship? And this is what my brilliant son said to me. He must get it from his daddy. He said, Mama, personal, daily Devotion will lead to a mindset of focused worship. Personal, daily devotion is what leads to the proper mindset at worship. And I was like, whoa, that's my kid. Because he is right, isn't he? Personal, daily devotion. If you do what you should do in your life every day, Sunday's a given, isn't it? Then I went to my son-in-law, who's also a brilliant young man. He's a gospel preacher. My daughter picked well. And I asked Josh, 
the same question. <clears throat> and Josh said, what do you do the six days before you worship? Isn't that funny? I didn't tell him what Clint had said. What do you do those six days before you worship God? He said, that's what matters to how you're going to worship God. And I thought, man, I have got two really good young men in my life, my son and my son-in-law. Personal, daily devotion. What are you thinking about? What are you living? What are you doing those six days before the Lord's Day? All right, so that's how we get ready. We prepare our heart. We pray, proper sleep, proper food, proper clothes. We make our relationships right. We have the proper attitude of humility and reverence, and we have that proper personal daily devotion. Point two, recognize. What do you recognize when you go into worship? Number one, I recognize God's greatness and my smallness. God's greatness and my smallness. His great sacrifice, my pitiful one. There's a book called Your God is Too Small. It's an excellent book. We have this problem. We have stopped thinking about how great God is and what he can do. You know, whenever anyone has a problem, they'll say, well, at least you can pray about it. As if that was a little thing. Is that not the first thing you ought to be doing is praying about it? Going to Almighty God about your problem? So we need to recognize God's greatness and our smallness. We need to recognize that when we come to worship, He is here. He's here. Do you not have an eye of faith? Do you not realize most things when it comes to Christianity you don't see except through faith? They're not tangible things that you can touch. They are things that you know to be true because God has declared it in his word. And you know it. God is here when we worship. And I am an empty vessel coming to be filled. I don't know how people make it in life without worship. How do they make it in life without God? I don't know. I can't do it. You can't. You cannot. You might think you're making it. The world is out there looking for God in all the wrong places. There's a hole in your heart. It's a God hole. And they're trying to fill it. Okay? And I have learned it's only God that can fill it. You might think you can fill it through politics or going to the gym every day or through some charity, you know, the Heart Association. And I'm not saying those are bad things, but I'm saying they are not God, okay? They are not the Lord. And you can fill your life with lots of stuff, but if you're not filling it with seeking the kingdom first, you have not recognized what your purpose is. Fear God 
and keep his commandments. For this is the whole of man. And he's going to bring everything into judgment. Ecclesiastes 12. If you are doing something else, you have prostituted your existence. He is here. I'm an empty vessel coming to be filled. 2 Corinthians 10.5 is one of my favorite verses in the world because it is so amazing. Casting down imaginations. This is what we do when we come here. Casting down imaginations. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Oh, my word. Is that not an amazing verse? That should be our goal for our whole life, to bring every thought into the obedience of Christ. A lot packed in that one little verse, isn't it? Another thing we recognize is, I call it consideration. We consider. King David said it like this. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Who am I, Lord? Look at this amazing universe. And yet you are mindful of me. The other day I was watching a documentary on the Voyager. It's it's those two satellites, Voyager 1 and 2, that they sent out back in the 70s. And it does nothing but take pictures and send back. And Carl Sagan, who never said much of anything right most of his life (laughs) because he didn't believe in God. I don't know. how How do you study the heavens and not believe in God? That's crazy. But anyway, he was talking about them sending out the Voyager and all these amazing pictures it was sending back of all the planets and the moons and everything of all these. It's just amazing pictures. And when it got to the edge of our solar system, it took a picture backwards of all of our planets. And there was the sun, the sun's rays coming across And right in the middle of that sun's ray was this little speck, and it looked like a speck of dust. And Mr. Sagan said, that's Earth. And he said one right thing. He said, and everything we love is on that speck of dust. Everybody we love. And that speck of dust was created by my God the earth, and no other planet is like it in all of creation. I consider that when I come to worship. That's the God that I worship, the great creator, the great sustainer. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, who upholds all things by the word of his power. 
who has purged me from my sins and has sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's Hebrews 1. Who writes like that? Only God's Spirit. Who says those kind? Only God. He upholds all things by the word of his power. That's what I consider when I come to worship. When we come to worship, we examine ourselves, don't we? Paul told the Corinthians that in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. So you consider God and you consider yourself. David said it like this in Psalm 26. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. We're not afraid for God to examine us if we walk in his truth, are we? No. So when we come, we recognize his greatness. We recognize he is here. We recognize that we are empty vessels seeking to be filled. We consider him as creator. And we examine ourselves. And one last thing under what we recognize is we must recognize that we must do things God's way and not our own. Do you remember Jeroboam, King Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12? By this time, the kingdom had split into the northern and southern kingdom. And Jeroboam was having a hard time with this because the Israelites in the southern kingdom had Jerusalem and they would go to Jerusalem to worship. And he didn't have Jerusalem up in the northern kingdom. And guess what he did? He said, well, I'll just do my own thing. I will pick a town. I will pick a God. I will do it my way. And he did everything according to what was right in his own eyes. And he was punished for it. He was punished for it. I think about when King David wanted to build a house for God. You know, God didn't step back and say, well, David, that is wonderful. I'm so glad you're finally going to build me a place to be, a place for you to come and worship me. That is just great. That is not what God said. He said, did I speak a word to you about this? Did I say one single word to you, David, to build this house? Did I tell you to do this? How many times have we said that to our kids? Did I tell you to do that? We should know how God felt. It doesn't matter that it was a good thing. It wasn't good to God because he didn't tell him to do it. What about our worship? Do we worship according to the Lord's will? Or do we just do what we want to do because it pleases us? No. God forbid. We cannot be like King Jeroboam and make up our own way of worship. We must follow according to the authority of Christ. We live under the New Testament. That is God's law now. That is Christ's law. We must worship according to his law. How many times did God try to teach us this by the Israelites? They were constantly wanting to do things their own way. And we look at them and say, 
Shouldn't they have known better? And yet this world is doing the exact same thing, and some even in the Lord's church. How sad, sad that is. We cannot do things our own way. We must be humble and reverent and obedient sheep and follow the shepherd. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and no man can pluck them from my hand. Now look at that for a minute. My sheep hear my voice. They don't follow themselves. They follow the shepherd. And I know them. Jesus knows who's following him. And they're never going to perish. He's not going to let the devil get you if you are listening to his voice. His way, not ours. Last point. Remember, we have gotten ready, we have recognized, and now we're going to remember. You look at those words written on that table in front of you, right? This do in remembrance of me. You know that's going to be there when you walk into a building of the Lord's people, don't you? Because that's what we do every Lord's Day. We remember. We remember the death of Jesus. You know, there were three crosses on that hill that day. There were three crosses. But only one matters to me. Thousands of people were crucified by the Romans and even other groups like the Assyrians and Persians. Crucifixion was not a new thing. But the man that died on that cross that took upon him the sins of the world, there was only one, Jesus Christ. That cross is what should matter to us. When we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, and people have different ways of remembering Jesus at that time. I do different things during that time. Sometimes I repeat verses to myself. For instance, Isaiah 53 is very meaningful to me. And I repeat it to myself as I think about the death of Christ. By his stripes, I am healed. I quote Hebrews 1 to myself because it talks about how Jesus purged me from my sins. I read verses like Matthew 27, 35, and there they crucified him. Sometimes I quote songs to myself when I'm remembering the death of Jesus. I have favorite songs that I love the words to that help me remember. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. Remind yourself that Jesus loves your soul. That's why he died. So you can repeat songs to yourself as you remember Jesus' death. And many times I pray Sometimes I do all of these things during the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> I have pictures in my Bible class of the life of Christ while he was here on earth. Um, several pictures. 
there's a young lady in our congregation that obeyed the gospel not long ago, and she came into my classroom, and she was asking me about the pictures. And I basically just told her the life of Christ, and I went through each picture, and we got to the end, and and the very last one was the picture of the empty tomb. And I began to weep as I was talking to her. I was just weeping. And I thought, this is what we need to do. We need to talk about Jesus to people. This is what we need to do, is teach people about what the Lord has done for us. This will have, make you have a tender heart and show people how much he means. So we remember his death. Something else we remember is everything God has done. In Psalm 77, David says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. Who is so great a God as our God? Thou art the God that doest wonders. We remember that in worship. We remember our own salvation. Do you stop and think about the day that you obeyed the gospel? I I do, often. I know God wants us to because in Romans 6, Paul talks about it to the Romans. They were already Christians. But he tells them all about what they did to obey the gospel. We need to remember that day. Something else we need to do in worship is teach our children what we are doing. Are you training your kids as you worship? There's nothing sweeter than the sound of my daughter and my daughter-in-law when they come visit us. I hear them talking to their little ones. When we take the Lord's Supper, they tell them, they, this is what they describe to them. I weep because they are doing what they are supposed to do. Teach their children what worship is all about. Years and years ago, when we lived in South Florida, I was responsible for getting the communion together one Sunday. And so Saturday afternoon, I had gone out to the building to prepare it, and I had two little ones with me. My son was seven, and my daughter was three. And I was, you know, getting the trays together and everything. And my daughter, who was three, reached into the plate for the unleavened bread. And as she grabbed it, my son slapped her, (laughs) my seven-year-old. Before I could do anything, Clint slapped her and said, Christiane, that is the Lord's body. (laughs) He was seven years old. And I stepped back, and I'm watching them. And she was horrified. She was like, oh, oh, she put that down. And she stepped back, and Clint just carried on, helping me put everything. And I thought, you know what? I had taught that kid a lot more than I realized. Plus, he'd been to worship every day since the first week he was born, every week. Those children, they hear what these men say up here, don't they? 
They hear what you say and what you do in that pew when you worship. They don't miss a trick. But it's your responsibility to teach your kids. And I don't mean it needs to stop when they're seven. And it doesn't need to stop when they're teenagers. They need you then more than ever. I keep hearing them say, why are we losing our young people today? Why are they not coming back to the church once they go off to college at 18? Why is this happening? I have a couple clues, and I'm, I'm I'm including it here. Okay? Number one, we're being like Eli in the Old Testament. We are not restraining our children. Eli had grown sons who were violating the temple. What did he do about it? Not one thing. Not one thing. Now you're going to say, David, he, he spoke to him. He spoke to him. He told him to stop doing that. Yes, he did. He said, stop. Excuse me, God says you didn't restrain them. He was supposed to have, at the very least, kicked them out of the temple. He could have stoned them. That was the law. He didn't do one thing. When was the last time you saw a mother or father discipline their children? I mean actually do something. I don't mean, now Johnny. Now Johnny. Now, Johnny, God says you're not restraining your, your kids. We're not restraining them. They have no fear. I'm a retired school teacher. I know what I'm talking about. I taught high school English for over 20 years. 20-something, I lost count. Plus, I've taught Bible class for 44 But in high school, let me tell you, they don't fear anybody. I had to call a man with a gun to my class all the time to get them to sit down and shut up. Yeah. Is that ridiculous? I'd have stomped my own children in the ground before I'd let them act like that. Let me tell you. If I had ever said anything disrespectful to any adult, my mother would have burned me down expected me to rise from the ashes and apologize. (laughs) Now, why is that funny today? Why is that funny? You didn't know my mama. God rest her. She died of cancer in 1997, but let me tell you, if she were alive today and somebody said, when was the last time your mama slapped you, I'd say, I don't know yet. (laughs) I remember the last time I got slapped. And I was 18 years old. You think any of these kids are getting slapped today? No, ma'am. And why did my students love me? Because they thought I was going to slap them at any minute. Because they want discipline. They want somebody to care about them. And they have no guidance. Nobody loving them. Nobody guiding them. They're raising themselves. No restraint. No fear. And no respect. 
You don't teach your kids to respect when they're little. Doctors tell me there's a window of opportunity between one and five. If you have not taught your kids respect by the time they're five years old, God help the kindergarten teacher you're sending them to. My daughter has five kids. Five. From nine years old down. When they come to visit me, those children are lined out like little soldiers on that pew. Now, they're not perfect. They're children like anybody else. But when their mama or daddy speaks, they listen because they have been disciplined and they know that word. They don't say, I get a whip, and they say, I will be disciplined. And I know just what they mean because I have witnessed it. When they come to my house, they call me D. D doesn't have to say anything to them because their mom and daddy have already lined them out. I don't have to worry about it. Now, my daughter joined the Army after she got out of Freed Hardeman. Yeah, I paid for her through the nose to go to a private Christian school. She joined the Army. <laughs> go figure. Anyway, <clears throat> one of the elders' wives said to her at worship the last time they were there, she said, Christy, you're so good with your kids. She said, are you like that because you were in the Army? Christy started laughing. She said, uh, no, ma'am. She said, I'm like that because of those two people over there. And she pointed at me and her daddy. That was like... I live long enough to hear that. <laughs> Woo! Thank you. Thank you. You know all that hard work you're doing on your children? It will pay off. But you have to be consistent. You have to hang in there. You have to teach them restraint. You have to teach them respect. And they better have a good, healthy fear of you. Yes. Those teachers will be so grateful. That highway patrolman, he won't have to deal with your child. Okay? You won't have to worry. And most importantly, you will not have to worry about their soul. We worry about getting our kids a scholarship, getting on the soccer team, and all these other things that don't matter. And we don't worry about their soul. They're going to spend eternity somewhere. All right, Debbie's through ranting. Remember to teach your children what they're doing in worship, and don't stop just because they become teenagers. Something else you need to remember when you worship is that people are watching you. People are watching you. I had somebody say something to me recently about how I worship, and, and I can't even remember exactly how he said it, but he was trying to compliment me, and I don't know what he was talking about other than the fact that I'm serious when I worship. I don't play. I'm not clipping my nails. I'm not looking at my phone. I'm not doing everything else in the world. I am thinking about God. Okay. And he, he mentioned it. This is the song leader that sits behind me. I sit on the second pew. I have for 44 years. That's where I raised my kids, on the second pew. Don't tell me you can't. I did it. Okay. I never brought food to worship. You want to? That's fine. Just please clean up after yourself. Do you know how many times I've cleaned up a building that looked like a theater? This is not a theater. Teach your kids. Be an example because people are watching you. They watch me anyway. I'm the preacher's wife. I don't care about that. The only reason I care about that is I never, ever wanted to be a liability to my husband. 
okay? I watch what I say and I watch what I do because I never want to hurt him in his job and because I want to glorify God, okay? But people do watch you. Next, you go to worship because you edify your brethren there. We always quote Hebrews 10.25 about going to the assembly, right? But read the verse before it. It says, because there you provoke one another to love and good works. That's where we talk about what we do for one another and for others. We edify each other. And last of all, I know I've got to sit down. Remember when you're at worship to itemize the spiritual sacrifices that you're making while you're there. No, we don't put a ram on an altar and burn it, do we? We don't bring a basket of leaven or or wheat. That's not what we offer like they did under the old law. The main sacrifice has been offered for us, Jesus Christ himself. The other things that we do in our lives are spiritual sacrifices. What do they include? Well, they include prayer. When we come to worship and we pray, that's a sweet-smelling savor to God. They include singing. Our voices are a spiritual sacrifice to God. It includes when we partake of the Lord's Supper and we remember his death. That is a spiritual sacrifice you are participating in. When I give as I have been prospered joyfully and gratefully for the unlimited number of blessings that I've been given, that's a spiritual sacrifice. When I listen to the truth of God preached and I love it with everything that's in me, not because of who's preaching it, but because of the perfect message from God himself, that is a spiritual sacrifice when you love the truth. And add to that all the daily spiritual sacrifices that you live out in your life. Then we'll truly understand what it means to worship God. God help us to be ready, to recognize, and to remember Him every day, every moment. Thank you for having me.